Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Across the Street. Today is the first in a five-part series that y'all have to look forward to where we're going to actually discuss each of the five major conflicts that our veterans at the Durham VA participated in. So we're going to talk about who the vets are, what kind of conditions we might expect to see based on what time periods people served in, and also learn a little bit of history about the conflicts themselves. Today, we're going to talk about the Korean War, and with me to learn about it and talk about it is Dr. Blair Glasgow, one of my fellow hospitalist physicians here at the Durham VA and one of our newest additions to our team. She's a graduate of the University of Notre Dame for undergrad and Ohio State University for medicine. She trained in internal medicine at Walter Reed, and she's actually a veteran herself. She served in the Army as the brigade surgeon for the 1st Cavalry Division Support Brigade at Fort Hood, Texas. And she actually served in a non-combat deployment in South Korea, where she was the battalion surgeon for the 115th Brigade Support Battalion. She extended her time in Korea, where she actually ended up meeting her future spouse. She finished her service in June of 2019 at the rank of major. Most recently, she joined us at the Durham VA Medical Center in, I believe it was July of this year. Is that right, Dr. Glasgow? That's correct. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Glasgow. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's start off. Tell me a little bit about where your particular interest in Korea came from. Yeah, so I grew up hearing my father actually tell stories about his time in Korea. He was there during the post-conflict occupation, actually during the Vietnam War, and he was working in the Army's air defense artillery branch. So essentially with systems that detect and then shoot down missiles if North Korea were to attack South Korea. I was actually told after residency that I was going to deploy to Afghanistan, but lo and behold, my orders changed to Korea, which was both fortuitous since I met my husband there and also special since my dad had served in Korea as well. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about who the vets are at the Durham VA in particular. There are about 2,600 veterans who identify as having served in the actual Korean conflict, as well as an additional almost 3,000 who identify as having served in that era, but not in the conflict itself. What do we know about the Korean War vets and who they are? I think the differences between actual Korean War combat veterans compared to all the soldiers who have since served there, including those that are now stationed there, has always been really interesting to me. Comparing what those combat veterans experienced to what my dad experienced to what then I experienced in 2016. So in terms of the combat veterans, that's obviously an experience I can only really imagine and read about. Those soldiers, especially early on in the war, were thrown in very outnumbered, very unprepared, often without even initial combat training, and at least without refresher combat training, as their previous jobs had just been peacetime occupation of Japan. This meant that they were often physically and psychologically unprepared, especially because the initial months of the war were pretty much entirely combat. So those soldiers lived with constant threat to their lives and in really brutal living conditions. If they were lucky enough to not be killed or injured themselves, they likely saw their buddies or Korean civilians killed or injured along with the displacement and poverty that often comes as a result of war. Now, my dad's experience and mine were more similar in terms of threat level, but vastly different 
in terms of living conditions and creature comforts. We were both essentially on call at all times in case North Korea bombed or invaded. And as a part of that, every month or two, you would get alerted to a surprise EDRI. EDRI stands for Emergency Deployment Readiness Exercise, where you get called in the middle of the night or in the middle of the workday to run back to your barracks room, suit up in your combat gear, bring your previously packed bags to a central meeting location, go and sign out your weapon, and then meet at a central location with your unit all within a certain period of time. This is done for practice, but it can be purely random or sometimes more targeted if the threat level is high enough. So, you know, when North Korea is testing missiles or rockets. However, even though these experiences were very similar in terms of threat level for my father and I, the actual Korea we experienced was very different. He would always talk about how horrible the poverty was in the Korean civilian population because they were very much still rebuilding after the war. Their country had essentially been decimated. They were also establishing themselves as an independent nation. That's compared to when I was there. Korea now is in many ways more advanced than the U.S. You know, they've had 5G networks since 2019. Seoul is one of the largest, most metropolitan countries in the world. And it's home to, I think, 14 Fortune 500 countries, including LG, Samsung, and Hyundai. So our time off of work was very different. <laughs> so, Dr. Glasgow, when those injuries were happening, did you know they were drills? Was there ever concern that it was real? Almost all the time, you know it's a drill. If you don't know at the beginning, you do know fairly soon, once you meet up with your unit, that it's a drill. Technically, you know, North and South Korea are still at war. They signed an armistice agreement. They didn't have peace talks. They signed an armistice agreement, which ended the fighting, but not the war, essentially. And actually, South Korea never signed the armistice agreement, even to this day. Technically, the war never ended. So that's a great segue to kind of talk about the war itself, because this is something that we often don't talk about. I don't remember ever learning anything about the Korean War, and that might be why it's called the Forgotten War, because we just don't talk about it enough. So why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about the history itself? What, what was the fighting about, Dr. Glasgow? Sure. Just to set up the time frame, so the war actually started on June 25th, 1950, and the armistice agreement was signed on July 27th, 1953. And I think it's important to remember the setting that this all happened in. So this was the first military engagement of the Cold War, and it occurred just five years after the end of World War II. During this time frame, there was a rapid rise in Cold War tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union, and then the subsequent fear of nuclear war and the global spread of communism. So that's the setting where this all took place. And the Korean War also set the stage for the tension that's still present between North and South Korea and the South Korea-U.S. partnership. That divide started and lasted not just because of tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but also because of competing visions for the future of Korea itself. Korea itself was colonized by Japan from 1910 to 1945. So when the Japanese empire collapsed at the end of World War II, Korea did not have a government to fall back on. Therefore, the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed to a temporary division of Korea at the 38th parallel during the closing days of World War II so that both could maintain influence on the Korean peninsula. The Southern administration was anti-communist republic backed by the U.S. and based in Seoul. In 1948, it declared itself the Republic of Korea and the Office of Strategic Services in the U.S., which was actually the predecessor to the CIA, installed Syngman Rhee as its first president. He had lived in the U.S. in exile for many years. Soon thereafter, the communist Northern administration, which was backed by the USSR and based in Pyongyang, declared itself the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. It was led by Kim Il-sung, 
who was grandfather of North Korea's current dictator, Kim Jong-un. He had fought with the communists during the Chinese Civil War, which was kind of how he made a name for himself. So those two sides could not agree on a way to unify the country. And so President Truman actually convinced the United Nations to take over control of the South in 1948. Both of these regimes were unstable, both denied the legitimacy of the other, and both desired reunification of Korea, but under their specific leadership and ideologies. Each considered themselves to be the sole rightful ruler of Korea. Because of this, there were skirmishes at the border at the 38th parallel, even before the war broke out. The war itself actually started, as I mentioned, on June 25th, 1950, when North Korea launched a surprise invasion of South Korea by sending almost 100,000 troops across the 38th parallel into South Korea towards Seoul. The Soviet Union supported North Korea in the beginning with arms and tanks and strategy, but no actual soldiers. South Korea, unfortunately, only had around 65,000 troops, and not all of those soldiers even had a weapon. So not surprisingly, a few days later, the South had already lost control of Seoul and was retreating even further south. They did not concede, as North Korea was hoping that they would. So in comes the U.S. The U.S. didn't declare war itself, but instead went to the United Nations. And because the Soviets actually at that time were boycotting the UN Security Council, the Security Council passed resolutions calling for the invasion to halt and for UN members to pro provide military assistance to South Korea. 90% of UN forces over the course of the war were from the US, but 21 other countries contributed soldiers and other support. So the US showed up with actual ground troops and supplies by June 30th, so just five days after the start of the war. Unfortunately, despite aid from the U.S. and other U.N. countries, the South and its U.N. partners continued to retreat further south all summer. On September 15th, General Douglas MacArthur, which you probably remember from World War II fame, eventually allowed South Korea and U.N. forces to retake Seoul and force North Korea troops back north to the 38th parallel. General MacArthur continued this aggressive strategy. This forced, over time, North Korean forces to further retreat north. And once they got close to the Chinese borders, when Mao Zedong of China offered support to North Korea. So with this support from China, the United Nations command was pushed south back across the 38th parallel. And this period of the war resulted in really heavy losses for both sides. The fighting continued throughout the spring and summer of 1951. Seoul itself was decimated. Both sides realized you know, that a clear victor was not likely to come, at least without an acceptable cost. And so peace talks started in 1951. These peace talks failed, but around 1951, both sides agreed to the creation of the DMZ, or which stands for the Demilitarized Zone. Unfortunately, they disagreed on how to repatriate prisoners of war, which prevented the armistice from being signed for a couple more years. Around 1953, without real progress, support from American taxpayers, as well as the new president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, was dwindling. On July 27, 1953, United Nations Command, North Korea, and China all signed an armistice agreement. South Korea's President Syngman Rhee, as we mentioned, refused to ever sign. No South Korean leader has agreed since then to sign. Wow, that was an amazingly thorough review. Dr. Glasgow, I have to ask, how much of that did you just know from serving versus how much did you research on your own? So I knew some of it from my time over there, and South Korea actually has a couple of really good museums about this. But if I'm honest with you, you know, I didn't remember this from my AP US history class either. So I learned a lot for this talk. 
Well, thank you for that review, Dr. Glasgow. Tell me a little bit more about what happened to our soldiers in Korea. What kind of damages did they suffer? Yeah, so over 33,000 Americans died in the war. 103,000 were wounded and 7,000 were captured as POWs. Thousands, unfortunately, are still considered missing in action. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about the experiences that they had when they were in Korea. What were some of the relevant exposures for soldiers during combat? Yeah, so I think I'll divide them into four categories. So environmental, toxins, combat, and then infectious diseases. So from an environmental standpoint, to kind of give you a better idea of what the weather was like, the 38th parallel equivalent near us would actually be Charlottesville, Virginia. This was somewhat surprising to me when I looked it up. Charlottesville seems to have such a pleasant climate. And from my experience, weather felt a lot harsher in Korea. Soldiers, especially during that first winter, were subject to a fairly extreme cold. Temperatures were fairly consistently 50 below zero with wind chill factors of 100 or below. Injuries that included frostbite, hypothermia, and trench foot, or what is now known as immersion foot. And these are actually some of the most common disabilities claimed by Korean War veterans. And lasting health problems from these injuries include skin cancer and the frostbite scars, painful neuropathy of the fingers and toes, vascular injury with Raynaud's, and actual physical changes to the muscle skin, hair, nails, and ligaments. Next, we'll talk about toxin exposures. Those included radiation and iodizing radiation, asbestos, PCBs or polychlorinated biphenyls, noise and vibration from machines and gunfire, as well as you know, lead, fuel, and industrial solvent exposures. So asbestos exposure is particularly common in Navy veterans from that time because almost all ships made between the 1930s through the 1970s were made using asbestos. Radiation exposure isn't as common in actual Korean War veterans because nuclear testing was fairly common during the Korean War time, but not necessarily in Korea itself. And the PCBs I mentioned, those are an organic chlorine compound used as a coolant and dielectric in electrical apparatuses, and they've subsequently been found to be both carcinogenic as well as to affect both sex and thyroid hormone levels. In terms of the trauma experienced during the war, you know, the most common injuries were gunshot wounds, shrapnel wounds, amputations, and burns. The Korean War was actually where the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, or MASH, which you'll recognize the term from the TV show, is the first time those units were deployed. So what would happen is medics would triage and stabilize as much as possible, pulling them from the front lines until helicopter and ambulances were able to take casualties to the MASH for treatment within three to 12 hours of being wounded. There, they would clean out the wounds, they would often leave them open and packed, and then they would transport the wounded and send them to military hospitals in Japan for ongoing care. So under this system, mortality from all wounds decreased to all-time lows. Some of the things that were common are no longer a problem. I actually treated a case of malaria from Korea this year. I think it was in late March or so, around two to three weeks after a large brigade of around 6,000 soldiers returned to Texas from Korea. Obviously, if you remember this time frame, where we were in Texas had very few COVID cases, but Korea, where these soldiers had returned from, had a higher prevalence. And so a young soldier got admitted to my service overnight for presumed COVID. He presented with fevers, headaches, fatigue a loss of appetite, just feeling achy all over. He was leukopenic, had a mild transaminitis, and so you know, it was thought he had COVID. But the next day, his COVID test came back negative. We all thought it was a false negative, and so kept him on precautions and retested. But 
before I left work that day, kind of on a whim, I sent off thick and thin smears. You know, as a physician in the army, I had done my fair share of fever of unknown origin workups and returning travelers. And never once had thick and thin smears come back positive, but I, you know, he had come back from Korea, so I sent it off anyway. My buddy Brian was covering that night and got a call from a very surprised and hesitant young soldier lab technician who said something to the extent of, uh, sir, I've never seen this before except for in textbooks, but I'm almost certain there are parasites in these smears. Walked away from my supervisor to come in, but I don't think it's falciparum. And there's no falciparum in Korea anyway, just Fivax. So this soldier ended up getting treated for malaria instead of COVID. So it was a good reminder for me against premature closure in the diagnostic process. Yeah, that's a great story. And for multiple reasons, at the very least, it's relevant because it reminds us that there are still young and otherwise healthy people that are serving in Korea right now and that we should never get too comfortable. It's also possible to see this in a VA population because, you know, soldiers can separate from the army, you know, immediately after coming back from Korea or actually can be sent back from Korea because they're, you know, the end date of their commitment is done. And so they could be in VA care in the time frame that Vivax malaria can present. So it'll be interesting for us to keep an eye out when we see that we have a patient who is a Korean War veteran to look through their history a little bit more and see if they're potentially someone who could have had some of these exposures. And it's important to note that most of these vets are on the older side now, right? Dr. Glasgow, they're usually in their 80s or even their 90s now. That's correct. What kinds of things should we be looking for in our current population of Korean War vets when they get hospitalized at the Durham VA, bearing in mind that they're on the older side? Sure. I think one of the things that has stuck out to me is to just ask them their stories. As you mentioned kind of at the beginning, the Korean War has been called the Forgotten War due to both censored media coverage of the war, as well as the fact that it was kind of overshadowed by World War II beforehand and then the Vietnam War after. On top of that, the public response was very different. While 70% of World War II vets felt appreciated by the American public upon their return, only 33% of Korean War veterans did. So I would imagine that that had quite an effect on the mental health and well-being of the soldiers who came back. Was post-traumatic stress defined during this conflict? It was not defined. PTSD was not actually a formal diagnosis until DSM-3 came out in 1980. Psychiatric syndromes resulting from war and combat exposure were known by different terms back then. So things like shell shock or chronic traumatic war neurosis or combat fatigue or combat exhaustion. And treatment at the time, you know, acutely on the battlefield was really focused on getting them back into combat. And then very little follow-up was done. So it's actually unknown how many Korean War veterans develop PTSD. PTSD symptoms can actually reemerge during retirement or with the onset of cognitive impairment after being in remission for really decades. Because, you know, these veterans may be less able to distract themselves with work and activities and, and thus spend more time reminiscing. And so I would imagine, you know, during the pandemic, this is especially true. So recognizing, you know, if your patient is going through this and connecting your patient with a mental health provider could do a lot of good. PTSD in older adults often presents with more somatic complaints rather than psychiatric problems. So things like pain, sleep, GI disturbances may actually be manifestations of recurring PTSD symptoms rather than truly organic medical problems. Yeah, that's a really important thing to note in this population that's aging, that might have the beginnings of some mild cognitive impairment. These things that maybe they had never been formally diagnosed with before might start to resurface. And so we may actually be the ones identifying it for the first time. Definitely. 
Dr. Glasgow, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today and learning about Korea from you. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. A note to the listeners, the residents and interns in particular, if you want to know more about the Korean conflict or some of the exposures or damages that happened to our veterans uh, while they were over there, please refer to your curriculum website. We have a bunch of references there for you to read and learn more. As always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.